Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, hey, critics out there. It is a frosty zero degrees today here in Denver, and uh, so I'm chilling <laughs> here, uh, but things are going all right, and uh, we have a podcast this week that I wanted to promote to you guys because um, I... It's it, it's not Scientology related, so it tends to not get as many views, but I think this is really important stuff, and I wanted to highlight it for you so you'd know it's there if you would like to take advantage of that information, and that is street epistemology. How do we talk to each other in a civil way and challenge each other in a civil, rational way without getting into heated arguments and debates and nonsense like that? How do we do it? Well, street epistemology is one method, and it's a pretty good one, and it's one that I certainly endorse. And Anthony Magnabosco and I had a really long and interesting and, uh, I thought, uh, you know, useful take on this in our podcast this week. So I hope you guys will check that out. Just trying to do my part, I guess you could say, to try to bring the temperature down out there and, um, you know, and just kind of push back against uh, unreason and conspiracy thinking and, and non-critical thinking. You know, I want to do. <laughs> okay, so anyway, wanted to put that out there. Um, also wanted to let everybody know that here in Denver, there is a place that is pretty special to me called the Secular Hub and they are homeless now. They have uh, lost their building due to COVID and the and all the craziness that's been going on. But they are still in very active secular community and group here in Colorado. And uh, they are kind of an umbrella group for secular activities. Everything from um, Freedom from Religion Foundation to uh, American Humanist Association to... Um, even an AA program for that's the secular base that is not based on uh, God and um, recovering from religion. There's a lot of different things that go into the secular hub as well as just straight up community for local people here. So I recognize I have an international audience and a lot of you guys might not care about this or have anything to do with it. But for those of you who do care about such things and would like to see more secular community and more secular centers set up around you know, the United States. Well, the Secular Hub here in Denver is a nice model for that, and we would like to get a new building. So they're doing fundraising for that, and I will put a link below to the Secular Hub site. So if you want to check that out or if you are able to contribute to that, then you can do so. Okay, so that's my little plug on that. And no, they are not, nobody even asked me to, to plug it here on my show. I'm not getting any kickback endorsement or or anything like that on that, okay? It's just something I care about. And um, if you watch my Critical Conversation show, you'll know that that's actually where my wife and I met. <laughs> so the Secular Hub has some has a has a deep place in my heart. So I really would like to see that thing uh, survive and and thrive. Okay, with that, I think we will get on with your questions now. Bagley, someone recently asked if you would hypothetically kill coronavirus patient zero if you could go back in time in order to prevent the spread and thus mass deaths caused. You replied no for various reasons which you explained. This got me thinking. In order to kill such a person, it means you can identify them. So if you could go back in time and you have identified this person but would not kill them, and assuming they refuse to visit a hospital of their own free will, knowing the full facts, 
would you either forcibly abduct them and present them to a medical facility or inform the authorities who, in this case, would aggressively detain them against their will and effectively sectioning them, for want of a better term, only for a physical rather than a mental illness, to both keep them safe and protect the public. Both cases would make this innocent party utterly terrified. I guess broadly the question is at what point do we subject innocent people to force and temporary incarceration in order for the greater good, which sounds a bit Scientologist. Okay, well, thank you very much for this uh, sort of modification of that question, which I found very interesting. Now, you've presented a very specific scenario, so I'm going to address the scenario you you brought up where you have this person. You Okay, so first off, I can travel in time, and I know what's going to happen, and I'm going back to this person, and like you said, we can identify who this person is, and even after doing the whole... Uh, you know, if you remember Terminator 2, right, the whole T-1000 Sarah Connor breakdown to, you know, uh, scientist Dyson about, you know, hey, the, the work you're doing right now is going to destroy the world, right? Like, when you break it down like that, you know, clearly the result, you know, the response in the movie was, I think I'm going to be sick. I mean, the professor immediately, you know, the, the scientist guy was immediately like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is where this is going. I how could we have known, right? And, you know, that whole thing. So um, I bring that up because that's an instance where you go back and inform somebody of what's up with the consequences of their, the unintended consequences of their actions. And they have a correct response of, oh my God, I can't believe that. Well, let's change that. Here you're presenting a scenario where the person is informed of this. I go back, I tell them, I say, look, there's going to be hundreds of thousands of people who are going to die if we don't do something about you right now. We have the opportunity to change the course of history in a, in a positive direction for once if you personally, individually, will go simply quarantine and get through this illness and, and, uh, and get taken care of. And the person says, no, absolutely not. Screw that. Okay, well, first off, who is that person, right? Who, who is that? Now, if they don't believe you, Okay, well, that's one thing. But if they simply go, you know, you mentioned here in the question, they are fully informed, know the full facts, and they just say, nah, screw you. I'm okay with that. I'm all right with a couple hundred thousand people dying because my personal freedom means more than that. I mean, let's make that up as a motivating reason. I mean, there could be various reasons why the person might, you know, react negatively to it. But basically, I think they would all come down to fairly selfish reasons. Now, I'm, you know, I haven't given this like days of thought, but I, that tends to be my, my, where my, my thinking goes with that. So here you're asking, you know, at what point do we take this innocent person and section them off or condone, you know, cordon them away from society, um, sequester them away because they are a threat to a vast number of the rest of the population? Well, this is really not very hypothetical because this is why we have prisons. This is why we have mental health wards and institutions where you can be involuntarily committed. And we have laws governing that. And uh, what I did look up here is, you know, can you, is it a criminal offense to have a disease and know you have the disease and purposefully spread it or act recklessly, even if not purposefully, to spread the disease, is that a criminal offense? And the fact of the matter is that it is. Or it is right up against the edge of it, depending on what state you're in. This is, of course, here in the United States. 
there are other places in the world where they'll just put, put a bullet in your head and that'll be the end of it. So, uh, I mean, look at how the Philippines is dealing with the drug problem, if you don't believe what I'm talking about here, right? So, uh, so the United States is actually fairly, <laughs> you know, Western world's fairly, fairly uh, attempting, let me put it that way, attempting to be more civilized than just the bullet in the head solution. Uh, there's a lot to be said about, uh, you know, problems with our prison system and with our, our justice system in terms of how people get there. And this is, and I'm not going to go on some whole roll about that right now. I've done that before and I'll probably do that again. But for the purposes of this question, let's just put there that these systems are relatively just and that we agree that they are necessary, which they are. Because uh, what you're talking about here is an individual who cannot put the greater good ahead of his own selfish interests or her selfish interests. And, um, and that is simply unacceptable behavior, right? Um, for, you know, on the principle that life is valuable, that lives are valuable, and that people have the deserve to have a heads up at least that they are, you know, being threatened with potential death. I mean, if this person is just allowed to wander, this patient zero is just allowed to wander aimlessly through society, infecting whoever they run into, well, that's how the whole thing starts. And that's, we, we know how this goes. And this scenario you're presenting to me is, is the only fantastical or science fiction element of it is that I'm from the future and I know what's going to happen. It's not a hypothetical that if this person is not sequestered away, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. This is not a question in the situation you've presented. It is a certainty. We know what's going to happen. So it's, it's not a matter of um, you know, wondering about or a statistical probability. It's a certainty. And in the face of such certainty, you can absolutely act with certainty to prevent said disaster or catastrophe from happening. And the life of one person in that equation versus the lives of 200,000 others is not a same, same situation there. When you talk to me about removing, you know, taking that person's life, uh, you know, murdering them, right? I, I take exception for, you know, for all the reasons that I said, but sequestering them away, putting them, you know, putting them in a room for a while, uh, you know, really not even that long, all things considered, while this is dealt with is, <clears throat> is, a, uh, is a whole different matter from taking their life. Um, you know, in terms of, of, of levels of consequences. <laughs> so um, anyway, so as far as I can tell here, this is a completely justified scenario for uh, involuntary incarceration of this person for the express purpose of saving lives. And that is the real, really the only fundamental reason we have for separating or incarcerating people from society is because they do present a known, understood uh, obvious threat to the well-being, livelihood, freedom, and security of um, people around them. And that equation is a number equation. You can run arithmetic on an equation like that. Uh, that would work in this case. So that's that's my take on it, at least uh, from the way you've ordered your question. I, I don't know if you were looking for something else, but let me know if that, uh, if that doesn't satisfy. Mark P., I know you're up to your nose in schoolwork at this time, and I'd be interested to know a little more on how the program is laid out 
what you have left, and about how long you'll be working on it until graduation. All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, so, yes, I am going to a university program. I am studying online full time through the University of Salford in the United Kingdom. And uh, this program is uh, the Psychology of Coercive Control. It is a master's program, so it's post-grad. I jumped the line and was able to get into this program because of my professional experience since leaving Scientology, having written a book and channel and doing all these interviews and having published academic. I've, I've got one published academic paper in a journal. So uh, all of those things helped credit me in this direction of getting accepted into this program. It is a tough program, master's level Study is not easy, um, and uh, and of course, jumping the line makes it a little harder, but I am determined to get through this despite hell or high water, and there has been a lot of hell and a lot of high water along the way here, but it's fine. It's just a university program, and if I could get through an RPF, I can certainly get through this. <laughs> so the program is actually quite exciting, and the learning on the program has been amazing. Um, the first, uh, the, it's, the, the program is divided into three sections or three, it's a it's three trimesters. Um, excuse me, the UK program, the UK system is a, is a bit different than the United States system. Grading is different. The way they divide up the year is different. The way they approach lecturing or how, you know, even attendance is different. There aren't pop quizzes or tests or anything during the, in the middle of the, um, terms. There is just final assignments. So three terms. The first term is now over. We are now into the second week of the second term now. Um, the first term covered the itology uh, of, of, of coercive control, which is basically the causes or ways or, or, or framework of what coercive control is, how it, how it comes about. And the other class that I took was research methods in psychology, which is more of a sort of generalized kind of class on how to do research. And um, then the second term that I'm in now, I have two classes, both covering coercive control. One of them is on the um, recovery from coercive control, and the other one is on coercive control across different contexts. Because uh, coercive control in a religious setting is different from religious or coercive control in a domestic setting, which can be different from coercive control in, let's say, a cult, which can be slightly different from coercive control in a terrorist cell. All of these things are related to each other in, in fundamental ways. Coercive control is coercive control. But we're studying how it varies and changes across these different contexts. So, and the recovery module, the recovery class that I'm doing is, of course, focused on treatment methods and how one comes about recovering from a cultic or extremist group experience, including, by the way, domestic violence situations, human trafficking, stuff like that. The class is basically framed around the idea that coercive control as a concept is something that manifests in different domains. And this is the first post-grad program that is that has put coercive control into this kind of a framework of studying it in the in the in the view of domestic or um, um, interpersonal, you know, partner, um, intimate, sorry, interpersonal, I keep saying that, but it's actually intimate partner violence, IPV. Um, so you have the you have that domain. You have uh, cults, gangs, extremist groups as a domain, and then you have 
human trafficking as a domain, which is a distinct sort of thing. And it's got its own problems and and regulations and everything concerning it. So we're covering this this subject matter or this topic across these domains, including now in this um, in the context, uh, you know, across the different contexts uh, class, we'll be actually looking also at uh, coercive control on the Internet. Because I believe that, uh, and, I, and I'm getting agreement on this view uh, from my professors and other classmates, that uh, the Internet and, and researching how coercive control occurs there is the future of this, of this uh, profession or subject matter or, or, or area, because uh, the Internet's not going away. And when we see the rise of things like QAnon uh, or Flat Earth, uh, which was, you know, which was, which precedes that, or uh, Pizzagate, which was a precursor to QAnon. These are internet-based uh, cults at this point, or or ideas, right? Flat Earth is, you know, culty. It's got cultish stuff going on, but it's 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 not really the a cult the same way Scientology is, and that's the whole point: is that these online cults, the model's a bit different. You know, and it's not a charismatic leader model cult. So uh, they, it can be. You can have a, a cult that uses the internet as an additional tool for recruitment, retention, communication, you know, coordination, etc. But you also have this whole other thing where an internet-based culture develops. Anyway, I digress from the question you asked me here. So. We're studying all of that stuff. And the third trimester after this term is done, then the next one will be the my dissertation. And all that will be over the summer, and I'll be working flat out on uh, research uh, on that. You can either do original research or you can do like a systematic review or some kind of, you know, uh, a, dissert- a, a discourse review or something like that. You know, there's various things we can do to write a paper. I think the I think the dissertation's um, twelve thousand five hundred words or something. The, the The final essays we've been doing for each term have been five thousand word essays, and the dissertation I think is going to be twelve thousand five hundred, which roughly equates to about fifty pages, uh, double space typed document, right? Uh, so, or you know, maybe roughly an hour long video in terms of word count. Okay, so. Um, so I have written that much before. It's not a big deal in terms of word count, but uh, writing academically has been a huge, huge bugbear for me. It's a real hammer and tongs kind of writing. It's not easy. It doesn't come, come. Uh, I don't, I don't get into a flow writing academic. <laughs> not yet. Not even close yet. So that's been my, that's been a real problem for me in this so far. But if that's my biggest problem, you know. Okay, so um, okay, so that's the program, and it will be completed. I believe the the final assignment gets turned in in September, and graduation is in December. And I am counting on graduating, so um, so it's going to be a lot of work still. Um, and that's why, you know, the this uh, the the way the classes work is there are two lectures a week, so I'm doing those lectures. They're about three hours each. Um, so there's about six hours of lectures. Then there is um, a ton of reading. I mean, I've shown you guys stacks of papers uh, that I've been having to go through and read. There's videos to watch. There's books to read as well. So it's a lot, a lot of material that I've been covering on this. And there's a lot more material to cover. And you guys have been the beneficiaries of this because I, I, I maybe you've noticed, maybe not. Not a big deal one way or the other. I'm not 
going out of my way to try to sound more scholarly or smart or learned or something. But I do think that the learning that I've had so far has informed my answers here on the show and has informed the content on my podcast and has definitely changed the way I have looked at certain aspects of cultic behavior, extremist behavior, and how we fall for and get into that stuff. So, uh, and given me a much better appreciation of the level of work involved in doing academic work. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's rigorous, and it should be, and it's supposed to be. And it's very different from journalism. It's very different from what you see in the news. Um, and that's been eye-opening to me, too, even more so than I already knew. Okay, so there you go. Kevin Zay. In your opinion, how big of a role does past or present financial trouble play in being more susceptible to either joining a cult or forming radical religious or political beliefs? Hey, Kevin, thank you for this question. It's a very good one. And I actually believe that financial stress is one of the main stressors that can cause the sort of, uh, how do I put this, Um, anxiety, stress, concern, Worry, right, can put a person into a headspace where they are freaked out. And over time, you know, if you continue that that headspace, then you have a person who is becoming more and more susceptible to desperate solutions to a desperate problem. So financial because financial stress in our society is is survival stress. It is not just about little pieces of paper or little pieces of, of metal or numbers in a, in a, you know, on a web page in your bank account. It's about your survival. If you don't have money in a Western society, then you don't get to live. And the less money you have, the less livability you have, the less potential for life that you have. Um, and this is just how we have structured our society. And We are not about equality of opportunity in the United States. We pretend we are, but we're not. And that's what we need to actually deal with if the American dream is ever going to get resuscitated and actually uh, become more than just a dream and become a reality is we're going to have to deal with the fact that, you know, uh, the equality of opportunity, not the equality of outcome. I am not saying everybody should be equal. Everybody should be given the same amount of money. Everybody should be given the same things. That's the last thing I want. But I do want people to have the opportunity to be able to survive. And the fact that they can't or have, are having such barriers put in their way that it becomes almost insurmountable is one of the reasons why people get desperate enough to join extremist group situations. In fact, I'll, I, I'll go out on the limb and say it's probably one of the major reasons why we see um, extremist groups form up in the first place, much less destructive cults based on religion or politics. When we talk about terrorism, we are talking about, you know, usually economic disenfranchisement is a, is a component of that. When we talk about domestic violence, economic disenfranchisement is part of that picture too, because where does the stress on the part of the abuser come from? Not all abusers are sociopaths. You know, very good people can be turned into monsters very quickly. People really don't quite understand just how fast that process can happen. You put the right stressors on a person in the right context, and you can change them very quickly into a very different person, very much a worse person. And money plays an important part of that. 
um, you know, the the giving, the taking, the, um, the the possibly giving, the teasing, the carrot and the stick, right? So, um, so this had, tends to be a, a mainline stressor for people. And so if you ask how big of a role, I'm going to say it's one of the biggest. Teresa Bailey. I saw a YouTube video of Stacey Brooks and Jesse Prince demonstrating the training routines. I don't understand something I was hoping you could explain. I get the no blink, no twitch, or fidget, but when it came time for the TR routine where the questions were asked over and over, the question is asked, do birds fly? Five out of six times, the person answering says yes, but one time they said no, and the next time, yes. But each time, the person asking said, thank you, and kept asking the question. No right or wrong answer. What is the goal of that exercise? Awesome, Teresa. Thank you for this question. You are referring to training routine three. Uh, and that the, the name of that, of that uh, drill is duplicative question. And the point of the drill is to train the person who's asking the question, do birds fly? Or alternately, they can ask, do fish swim? Uh, over and over and over again. But the key to the drill, the thing that you're supposed to actually get is to ask each question newly in its own unit of time, as Hal Hubbard describes it, as though no one had ever asked that question before in all of history. Each time you ask the question, it is as though all the earlier instances of you asking it didn't happen. So that's the point, is to put each command newly there or each question newly there, because in Scientology, there are many, many, many of the auditing processes that are called repetitive processes, where you are being asked the same question over and over and over again. And if the auditor treats this as a slugfest marathon of you know endless questioning and himself comes off as bored, disinterested, not into it, oh, God, I got to ask you this question again— then the, obviously the person who's, you know, receiving the counseling, as they say, or the auditing, the preclear, is going to feel a little put out. It's going to feel like, well, the, you know, you feel like this is a waste of time. Well, I think it's a waste of time, too, amongst other things. And so the auditors are supposed to be trained so that they are sitting there ready to rock, ready to roll, every question delivered newly and, uh, and here in the present moment not as a blur with the other questions, okay? I'm sort of paraphrasing a lot of Hubbard here. I didn't look up the drill, but I've <laughs> I spent hundreds of hours on these things. So I, I think I still got most of the phrasing pretty memorized. Anyway, um, and this point, by the way, again, I didn't look this up either, but there is an issue that, that actually says this because Hubbard clarified that the answer doesn't really matter. You can say yes, you can say no, you can say I don't know. Now, the thing is, though, that the answer has to be an answer. You can't say, um, do birds fly, and the person says uh, refrigerator, and then the uh, auditor would not say thank you, okay, because that would be completely non sequitur. But if your answer, if the thing you say addresses, you know, is a valid response to the question, then it's acceptable. So yes is acceptable, no is acceptable, I don't know is acceptable, uh, maybe is not really an answer. I mean, do they or don't they? Well, they might, 
uh, you know, it does. It's not. It's not definitive enough to be an answer. Uh, at least normally, how how I ran my classroom, that wasn't how we how we dealt with that. So we wanted some kind of a definitive answer, but I don't know was acceptable because the person is literally like it's not. They're not being coy. They're not sort of you know guessing or throwing things around with well maybe possibly it could be. It's you know hey look man I just don't know the answer to the question. Hey all right you know good. Do birds fly, right? And here comes the next question. So um, that's kind of how that goes. But the goal of the exercise, I think I've, I've laid out for you. Bob Kemp. I was wondering how come the actress and Scientologist Erica Christensen played in the Christian propaganda movie The Case for Christ in 2017. Won't the upper echelons of Scientology punish her for that? Or is it that money is the most important thing to them all? She had one of the top billings in that movie. I mean, don't Scientologists see Christianity as something that evil Xenu implanted in people as an illusion to drive them away from the awakening that Scientology offers? So wouldn't Erica Christensen's starring in a Christian propaganda movie be equal to a Catholic actress starring in a movie that praises Satan? Hey, Bob, thanks for the question. Your question betrays a commonly misunderstood aspect of Scientology and their beliefs. And so I love clarifying this for people. You have to understand that you know more about Scientology than Scientologists do. Uh, if you watch my channel, if you watch South Park, if you have watched Going Clear, if you have watched Scientology in the Aftermath, if you have read any of the books, if you have even read articles from Rolling Stone or anything like that, you know more about Scientology than Scientologists do. But you're never going to tell Scientologists that, right? You don't know all that Scientologists know in terms of all the minutiae. What I mean is you know more about their secret beliefs. You know more about what really is going on in Scientology than Scientologists do. And by this, I mean I'm referring directly to the Xenu story and the idea that all religion and Jesus Christ is a figure and all of that is an implant. Okay, we've been over implants. Implants are, you know, the mental uh, brainwashing, right, that's occurred over the millennia and trillennia of your existence as a spiritual entity. It's not just something that happened to you this lifetime here on earth. Implants are something that happens to you mainly between lives, and uh, they are quite, they're quite bad, and they are quite effective, and this is why you can't remember things and stuff like that. So, um, but, but most Scientologists aren't, aren't aware of what implants are and how all that works until they get relatively far up the bridge, until they, you know, get further and further indoctrinated, in other words, into Scientology's belief set and walk through the gates of indoctrination that are the bridge to total freedom. So the Xenu story is OT level three. No one's going to get to that level in Scientology without being dedicated for years and giving over, well over uh, 100000 200 I'd say by the time you get to OT3, it's been at least $200,000 of investment. But, um, but that number varies on, on individual experience and area in the world you're in. It's significantly cheaper, by the way, to do a Scientology in Mexico, let's say, than it is here in the United States. Um, but anyway... It's still a ripoff, don't get me wrong. They're still going to gouge you for everything you got. Now, getting back to your question here, because I digress. Erica Christensen, I don't even know if she has reached the level of OT. But even if she has, 
she can't let on to anybody who is not OT, nor can any other Scientologist who's an OT, who does know this information, who understands the Xenu story, who understands that religion is an implant and Christ never existed and all that. See, that's really high-level stuff in Scientology. We talk about it because we don't care what level it is in Scientology. It's all a bunch of bunk. But to Scientologists, that's really sacred knowledge. So, uh, so they don't just dish it out to anybody. And once you have that knowledge, you got to keep it secret. You can't, you know, you can't be talking about this stuff. Now, obviously, in a very blatant, open way, like with South Park, where you had um, Isaac Hayes as a Scientologist who was an actor, voice actor on the show, and they lampoon Scientology, do a whole episode about it, reveal all the secrets of OT3. Obviously, Isaac Hayes, as a Scientologist, was not going to be allowed to continue working there because these guys just, you know, ridiculed Scientology in the most dramatic way possible as far as the church was concerned. So Isaac Hayes could not, you know, maintain some connection with that. But it wasn't, but his quitting wasn't an admittal, an admittance rather, that the Xenu story was true or that Scientologists actually believe that. It was merely a protest uh, uh, quit because of the ridicule, because of the satire. Hey, man, you're you're bashing my religion. You guys are a bunch of Trey and Matt are bigots. How dare you, right? Of course, Trey and Matt lampoon everything, but and everything was fine to lampoon right up to the point that they lampooned Scientology. That was a bridge too far for Isaac Hayes and for the church, and so Isaac had to quit. I was told, by the way, that Isaac didn't even want to. That's that the church had to put the thumbscrews on him in order to get him to quit. But um, but that was neither an admittance nor a denial of the Xenu story. It had nothing, you know, it, it, they, they can plausibly say that, that Isaac Hayes quit just because of the disrespect and the, and the bigotry from their point of view. Um, Erica Christensen, therefore, can't uh, just openly, even if she knows this stuff, she can't just say, well, I, you know, I'm not going to work on this because, you know, it's the, you know, the devil is all just an implant. See, it, the thing about implants is that they've already happened. They're done. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't really matter what you're doing in the here and now to, to you know, the, the religious implants, especially the, 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 the Christ implants and the, and the, the Catholic implants, angels, devils, demons, cherubs, you know, these kind of imagery, the cross, um, all of that stuff Hubbard said was implanted. But Erica Christensen being in a movie about, you know, Christ is not going to, is not going to really have any great big effect on the world or convert a bunch of people to Christianity. She knows that. And uh, so for her, it was more of a, of a, of an opportunity, a career opportunity to be a producer on the movie. But by the way, she produced, helped produce that movie. I did a review of that movie. I don't know if you know that. I did. I for a while I had a movie review channel, and I was doing movie reviews. And the Case for Christ was a movie I went and watched in the theater. <laughs> uh, I watched it for free. We got a free pass. Thank God I didn't have to pay for it. But man, what a whoa! I did not like that movie. Um, but her. But as far as she's concerned, she's she's. I I think she saw it as a career move. And, you know, and working for Pure Flix or, or independent media that way outside of the, the Hollywood thing, you know, some actors want to aspire to move up to producing and directing and stuff like that. And that's a way to do it. 
Uh, and I guess that's, you know, how she chose to do that. But, I, but I'm just letting you know, as a Scientologist, as former Scientologist, I can tell you, you could be involved in something like that. It's not going to be considered sacrilegious or bizarre or something. It would be worse. Okay, let me give you an example of something that would be significantly worse in the eyes of a Scientologist. Uh, if a Scientologist were to play a psych, a psychiatrist, they would not, I don't think any Scientologist would ever play a psychiatrist as a sympathetic character. I think they would always, I think they would jump at the chance of playing a psychiatrist uh, in an acting role as the bad guy. Oh, they'd be all about that. Because that would forward an ideological principle that Scientologists universally believe in and very openly state and can talk about. And that's the kind of virtue signaling that a Scientologist would be interested in doing to the world at large is playing a bad psychiatrist and who's going to get his comeuppance because look at how abusive and horrible the psychs are. Okay, so that's, that's the kind of thing that Scientologists would, um, would go for. Alternately, a Scientologist would, would I don't think a Scientologist would play sympathetically, would play a psychiatrist as a, as a good character or as a protagonist. Um, if I'm wrong, you know, let me know if there's an exception to that I'm not thinking about right now. But that's, that's kind of how I see that. And I hope that I've clarified the differences in those two situations. All right, let's do some flash answers. Gary Page. You commented in passing during Q&A number 297 that if you don't have hands, you can't hold the e-meter cans, so can never be saved by Scientology. That alone is an extremely off-putting position to take for any religion. Is it also true that if you've had ECT, you are automatically barred from Scientology salvation? Are there any other complete bans? Okay, yeah, there are quite a few complete bans from Scientology. Um, let's see here. Not having hands would definitely stop you from getting up through the OT levels. You could get to clear, but you couldn't go farther than that. Um, as far as having electric shock, yeah, you're gonna, you're not gonna be allowed to do go very far in Scientology with that. There were many, many people I saw over the years who had who had a history of ECT and were banned from auditing. It's called being an illegal PC. Other things that are basically going to get you um, kicked out of the church or banned from ever taking part in it are going to be other extensive psychiatric history, like if you had a history of, um, in, uh, of incarceration in a mental institution. If you were a um, seriously violent felon, you might have difficulties um, getting involved in Scientology and uh, just because they might consider you a security threat. And um, let's see, obviously, psychiatrists are not allowed into Scientology. You will never, ever, ever be allowed to do Scientology services as if you were walk in there as a psychiatrist. I mean, maybe they'll let you do a couple of the basic services, but maybe, you know, but uh, the, the, you're definitely going to hear about it if you walk in there and you're a psychiatrist. Jonathan Perry, if you make a substantial donation to a Christian church, you can write it off on your taxes. Can you write off Scientology services on your taxes? Yes, you can. That's what tax exemption is all about. Bruno, can a psychiatrist join Scientology? Nope, not really. Uh, you would maybe be able to get into the entrance gates. You might be able to do some basic services. But before they start auditing you or start dealing with you in any real serious way, 
they're gonna definitely confront you about your profession and the destruction that your profession causes. And they are not going to necessarily pull any punches on that. Scientologists, as a rule, hate psychiatry. They don't have a minor dislike for it. They don't sort of disagree with it. They hate it. And there's a tremendous amount of negative propaganda in Scientology about psychiatry. Every single mistake, misstep, error, stupidity, and criminal activity that psychiatry as a body has ever engaged in is highlighted heavily in Scientology's propaganda. Every single thing psychiatry has ever done to help anybody is negated. And it's and they, are, they say without question or qualm that psychiatry never helped anyone. It only hurts and damages and kills. That is Scientology's clear-cut black and white position on the matter, and they are immovable on it. So the idea of a psychiatrist coming in and successfully navigating his way through those services and up the bridge is pretty unrealistic. Okay, guys, thank you very much for coming around and watching the show this week. I want to thank my Patreon supporters for uh, their wonderful support. You guys are awesome. And I want to thank all of my critics out there, all of you. I am talking to every single viewer here when I call you my critics, uh, because you are the guys who are getting critical out there. You are becoming critical thinkers by watching this channel. You know, education, that is what it is about. It's about critical thinking. So, uh, you know, very much uh, support you guys uh, or thank you very much for your support. And uh, please do like, share, spread the good news of uh, <laughs> good news, good word, whatever, of this channel, because I do want to grow it. And I do want more people uh, coming around and seeing what is offered here, because I think that there are some valuable insights and information, you know, and, and if you guys agree, please help me out. All right. See you guys next week. Bye bye.